Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to this week's special patrons only episode of the Dispatches podcast. It is great to be back with you again and a huge welcome aboard to the new patrons who have joined us over the past week or so. It is great to have you on board with us this week. Just a reminder, this week is the week where we are back in force. So uh, later this week uh, will be the first free-to-air episode of the podcast. It'll be returning uh, with our regular programming schedule, our new schedule. Just a reminder that, as I mentioned in the previous episode, last year I ran myself just a little bit too ragged trying to produce three episodes every single week of the podcast, and I found that it was actually starting to interfere with my home life, my family life, in a way that wasn't good. I was just burning too much of the midnight oil. So I made a decision uh, at the start of this year that there was going to be, instead of three episodes a week, there'd be two episodes of the podcast every week. One of those is a special patrons-only episode just for you, our patrons, and the other episode is a free-to-air episode. And so there'd be one on a Monday or a Tuesday, if it's a long weekend like we've just had, that's the patrons episode where we start the week with that one, and then the second free-to-air episode uh, will be available on a Friday. Uh, under normal circumstances that you know the, the timing of the release may change a little bit from week to week depending on work schedule and other demands and, and things like that and also don't forget that uh, Monday Night Live the episodes and interviews and you know the video content will be returning sometime uh, later in February so the process has begun of putting the schedule together and contacting guests and trying to arrange interviews and all that kind of stuff that goes into it. And uh, and so that'll be returning later in February. Right, let's jump into today's topics. Um, there's another full episode today, lots to converse about and talk about. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm this week's free-to-air episode is going to be about, I'm going to be asking the question, does anyone actually care about telling the truth anymore? And in that episode, I want to highlight five incidents of major dishonesty that have happened over the last week, week and a half or so, and they include one from our Prime Minister, one in the last couple of days from a top uh, epidemiologist and public figure and advisor who just uh, did an interview with the media and told blatant and easily disprovable lies. This is in the last couple of days. Uh, an international incident, um, a school in Christchurch, there's lots, and and it really does highlight that we are living in a culture where um, we've lost sight of the truth, and it seems even just a willingness to to tell the truth or be told the truth, and why that matters, and I think I guess most importantly what uh, we can do to avoid falling into that trap ourselves. So that's the free to air episode later this week, and that's going to touch on some uh, current affairs issues. Originally, I was going to actually touch on them in today's episode, but I think I'll save one or two of them in particular for that episode because there's lots to actually talk about today. Um, and the topic of today's podcast, or the main topic I want to focus on, is Joe Rogan and the Canadian truckers and really how they have exposed a new political reality in the West. And I think it's something we need to be aware of. The, the ground has shifted, really, um, over the last two years. And what's happened with the Joe Rogan incident and with the Canadian truckers I think it's really exposed now, um, that shift, and, and really shown that I think it is a bit more concrete than perhaps some might have previously thought. 
Uh, before we do that, though, lots of other stories to cover off today, things I want to talk about and, um, and, and share my thoughts with you about. Um, just very quickly, the Winter Olympics has obviously kicked off. Um, I have to be honest with you, I'm, I'm finding it really hard to even be interested. And it's not that I don't enjoy the concept of Olympics or Winter Olympics or any of that sort of, sort of stuff. In the past, I have sort of reveled in that um, the atmosphere of the games. Well, certainly, at the very least, I've checked in from time to time. But this time, it's just I find it really hard to be excited because um, China is such a grave abuser of human rights. Uh, you're talking about a country that is engaged in running concentration camps. And here we are. Uh, I think effectively, there's this sort of this fantasy, this myth that somehow sports is a great diplomatic tool. I, I don't really see a lot of evidence to back that up. You, you might say at an international level, or sorry, at, a, at an individual level, you, you, you can maybe cite examples where people who previously had animosity to, towards each other might have changed their opinions. But I certainly think it's a myth to think that at, on an international level, at a, at a macro scale, on a large scale, that, for example, the Olympics is a great um, bringer of and builder of world peace. Um, and, and it seems we're just repeating history again. It, it, it's, I can't help but hear the, the echoes of, um, you know, the, the, the Olympics hosted by Nazi Germany and in and, and the presence of Hitler. I just... You know what I mean? It, it's just, uh, to me, it seems that what you're doing is you're actually giving an undue legitimization to a regime that is brutal in its authoritarianism and its failure to respect the human dignity of, of individual human persons. So you'll have to forgive me if I'm not particularly excited. Um, let me know in the comment section though what your thoughts are. Are you watching? Do you feel the same? Do you feel a bit differently? I mean, I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I just... Yeah, as I said, I think we're, we're, what all we're doing here is giving China something that it craves right now, which is um, international legitimacy and an, an excuse, another excuse, another way to cover up and gloss over the grave and extreme and very serious human rights that it's uh, abuses that it's perpetrating. And, um, and, and this is a problem that's been ongoing for a while now, and we've been trading with them, and we're in a bit of a devil's deal now, I think. We're... Um, yeah, gosh, it's, I, I really think it's probably only a matter of time before we really start getting stung for this. Um, well, uh, is it apathy? I, I, it's not, is it greed? I don't know if it's greed. I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's a, maybe a naivety, thinking that we could engage in economic evangelism and change a, you know, this sort of, this giant, monstrous um, authoritarian regime. I, yeah, it really what we're doing is we're just um, we're enabling them. That's what we're doing, and uh, so yeah, it's uh, I find it troubling rather than exciting to see the uh, the Winter Olympics and um, and uh, China as the host. It's just not something at all that I'm that interested in. Another incident that's been in the news of late, and I was going to talk about it last week, but then I decided to wait because I I wanted to see how it would all unfold, and that's the incident involving Kiwi journalist Charlotte Bayliss. Is it? It's Bayless, isn't it? It's interesting because her name actually is spelt Bayless, isn't it? But uh, but it's pronounced Bayless, I think, I believe. Again, forgive me if I'm getting the pronunciation wrong. It's the details that really matter here rather than so much how things are pronounced. Um, but uh, the MIQ incident uh, where a, you know, she obviously, not, not just a, a national um, scandal, if you like, or, or certainly a news story of, of epic proportions erupted, but it was also a global 
new story, a global scandal erupted. And a lot of people and commentators overseas even were asking questions about well, what the heck is going on in New Zealand. There's this pregnant woman. She's a Kiwi citizen. She can't come home to her own country. This is bizarre what's going on. Um, th- let me share my thoughts about this. Um, first of all, um, I think the, the MIQ has actually been a problem for some time now. There, there have been... Even when you could say that it provided a, a necessary tool to try and perhaps stem the flow, it was never, it seems to me, it's never really been managed properly. There's been lots of questionable practices going on around this. So it, it seems it's never been quite managed properly. And right from the get go, where it seems so blatantly obvious that if you're going to actually op- operate a, a, a quarantine procedure at your border, that's exactly what you should do. And the most prudent thing, it seems to me, would be that you would have out-of-the-way locations. So traditionally, when you quarantine people, you know, they might have been quarantined. Probably on ships was the most sort of uh, long-standing experience of quarantining people. And, and it was they would be quarantined to an island or, or to a place that wasn't in the city or town they were going to. And um, I think in some cases, even the, the ship itself was, what was it, moored out in the, in the bay or the, off the coast and, and you would do your quarantine on board. But, but the, the point is that what you didn't do was you didn't bring people into the population and then take them off to a hotel in the midst of your city or like with the Auckland case, right in the centre of your biggest city. Um, I, I sort of think that once we started doing that, it was really only a matter of time before, and sure enough, this is what happened, before you got COVID out in the community. It was also very bizarre. So it seems to me the more obvious thing to do would have been to do something like setting up quarantine facilities on the outskirts of your cities. So in sort of big open air type areas, away from suburban areas, away from the central city, away from the main population. Uh, it made sense to me that you would do things like you would have staff that would be rostered on and they would be rostered on, you know, group at a time. So so if you had a, a group of returnees that were coming into uh, to the MIQ facility, the staff would be rostered on with, say, the first group that started, it rotated in, and they would stay with that group until the end. You know, they wouldn't be coming and going constantly and, and you know, in the general population back into the quarantine group, back out of there into the general population again, you know, day in and day out, day in and day out, but on a, on a sort of, uh, you know, like a, a regular basis. It, se- it seems just so obvious to me that what you would do is that you would have a situation where, you know, you would try and create a an airtight, is, you know, not literally, but an airtight quarantine sort of procedure. But that never really was was what happened. And it just seems right from the beginning it was not well considered or managed then there were the questionable practices the 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 people who seemed to be getting preferential treatment and it didn't really make a lot of sense as to why they'd be getting preferential treatment the failure to actually um, act humanely so people with dying family members uh, who would be told no 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 exemptions for you no you must stay it just there's just it, it became this sort of bureaucratic nightmare, I think, in a lot of ways, and it never really struck me that it was a particularly well managed. I think it's been one of those things that has not been particularly well managed from the very beginning. And um, 
possibly part of that is that maybe, I don't know, maybe it, it should have been handed over right from the very beginning to the to the New Zealand Army and, and the logistics people to actually plan and implement the whole thing. Um, maybe that might have been a better off or a better situation because I'd imagine what they would have done is probably set up actual proper camps somewhere for people. You know, when I say camps, that sounds um, it sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it? But I, I don't mean as in, um, you know, gulags. I mean as in, you know, perhaps uh, motorhomes and uh, in, in big open fields, that that kind of a thing, you know. But, but an actual, uh, effectively like a, a quarantine city or town uh, rather than um, putting people in the general population just in a hotel and thinking that that was, you know, going to help keep things out. But then, so so MIQ's been a problem for a while, but then along comes this incident with, with Charlotte Bayliss, and I think it's a, this is a mixed bag, because for me, I look at this, and I think um, she did game the system, it seems. That, that, that there's some things in her story that are questionable, and it's clear. I mean, one article I read referred to her PR agent. So, so here's someone who knows how the media game works. She's a journalist. She knows how the media game works, and she knows how to utilize those skills to bring pressure to a situation. And there was a narrative that was crafted, I mean, by her, about her situation that really was crafted to, uh, you want to say to perfection, but not really, if, because as soon as you started sort of peeling back some of the layers, they were like, hold on, some questions started arising about the narrative, about timings and, you know, whether she could have actually been back soon, all these kinds of things. But but so definitely the, the, she, she brought her skills as a journalist. She understands that public pressure and shame on a government, but of certain types anyway, has a, has a big impact. And she really pressed those buttons as hard as she could. And there was a, as I said, there was a PR agent involved. This was a carefully massaged sort of incident. I, I haven't experienced this in my own life. Um, you know, some years back when my wife and I, we got caught up in a legal battle in the courts with our insurance company after the Christchurch earthquakes. And our home was destroyed and the insurance company, basically the offer that they were making got less and less and less until they they told us that they weren't going to pay anything out for our home that had been completely destroyed. And so I knew at that point that, so we were embroiled in a legal battle and it was starting to get a bit messy. I knew from my communications background and experience that we needed to actually get me media attention on this if we were going to get any traction. you know. And so the squeaky wheel gets the oil, the squeaky wheel that can actually draw public attention to something gets the, the lion's share of the oil. And so what I did was I made sure that we put out a press release and sure enough, we got media attention and all of a sudden, uh, you know, the insurance company started scrambling a little bit and and it wasn't long after that that things started to change because there was a realisation on the part of the insurance company, oh, okay, we're dealing with someone who can actually uh, create problems for us and, and, and can publicly sort of highlight what we're doing here and we don't really want that. That's not good for business, just... You know, pay these people what they they're owed and get rid of them. And and man, it took ages and all the way to the high court, but but they did pay out. But I understood that, and that's so. Here's someone who's in a situation where she's trying to achieve an outcome, which I think ultimately is good, which is to return home to have her baby here in New Zealand. But she's clearly has crafted a narrative to sort of sort of like to maximise the impact, the emotional impact of the story. But I think, as I said, I I, I am. I have some issues with this and the way it was done. And I think 
un- unfortunately, the the what's happened is she's actually ended up, and there was an article I saw about this, which I think was really spot on, was she ended up running public relations for the Taliban at the same time. And it really, really isn't good. She effectively painted the Taliban as these humanitarian uh, leaders who who care about the plight of women and children in a way that, you know, here in the little old New Zealand, we don't. And yeah, there are problems here in New Zealand. Don't get me wrong. And there's plenty of plenty of issues with MIQ. And, and, and let me talk more about that in just a second. But the fact is that no, the, the, the Taliban, and, and I don't think that was ever an option for her. One of the, the, the big questions for me, initially I was like shocked by this. I thought, this is absolutely shocking. How can this be happening? And then she mentioned that uh, the, the Taliban had offered her refuge and that she could stay and have her baby in Afghanistan. And I thought, uh, okay, hold on, hold on. I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And then not long after that, I think it was a few hours after that, all of a sudden there was another public statement saying another country had offered her um, uh asylum, shelter, so she could have a baby, but she didn't want to name the country. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't you name the country? And really, someone who's in her position with a PR campaigner, who's a seasoned veteran, I guarantee you that the reason you don't want to name names in a situation like that is because there's really only two reasons. One is that the person perhaps doesn't want to be named and maybe they haven't really made a solid deal in concrete. So you don't want to name them because if you publicly name the country, for example, that's given you the deal, then all of a sudden they rescind because, oh no, we never said that, you know, that kind of thing. Or you don't really want to be associated with that name because you know that it's not really going to help you from a PR perspective. So for example, if, uh, I don't know, China was the other country offering you asylum it, it's not you, do you know what i mean it's it's really probably not going to to aid your cause compared to say for example the country of austria or australia or the kingdom of tonga or uh, samoa has offered asylum do you know what i mean like th- those countries because you people know well yeah they are potential options for example to go to australia and have your baby there would be a potential option I don't think it would be realistic that she was going to stay uh, in Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. I don't think it was going to be realistic that she was going to go to, I mean, you know, let's say it was China. She, you know, you'd go to China, for example. You, these these are not realistic options. And I think the general public would know that. And it doesn't, it doesn't um, have the same impact. But if you say another country, you know, it leaves open the possibility and it, it, it sort of plays into the, the PR of it all. But what she ended up doing at the end of the day was she ran PR, for the Taliban. And as um, I, I saw one article that was written by people who have actually been victims of the Taliban, um, they said that this was just absolutely shocking and it was irresponsible. And it, what it does is it, it they scored a big PR coup out of this. And in her efforts to sort of um, feather her own nest and to gain entry back into New Zealand, um, she actually, I think she's actually probably done potential harm here to, to people um, and 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 like it's this is you know really not a good thing at all it's you know the Taliban are not they are not uh, you know a, a stable peace-loving society and government you know it's 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 um 
it's a, a rich a, a ritual a a religious authoritarian um, uh, dictatorship of sorts that um, regularly and uh, you know consistently has shown itself to not care about human dignity to not care about human rights uh, and to to be willing to violate those things in quite serious ways. Uh, meantime, this week, in the last couple of days, there was another incident in the MIQ. There was a, a, a man who came back here, a son, to see his dying father, father dying of, of cancer, and he came back to be at his father's bedside for the final days of his father's life. And he said, look, I'm in MIQ, I'm here, I'm vaccinated, you know, obviously the testing and all that sort of stuff. Please just let me go straight to my father's property. I will stay with him at his bedside until he dies. And I'm not going anywhere else. That's why I've come back. And um, they said no. And so he started a hunger strike um, to get uh, to get that outcome. And and thankfully, the you know, one again, see, to me, that's an example of someone who actually has, they've applied public pressure. I think they've done it in, in a, um, a more moral kind of way. I think I think what happened there was better. And, and the outcome... And to me, it seems there's very few questions about the legitimacy of his claims. And and it really, again, this points to me to the fact that I think, you know, despite what happened with Charlotte Bayless, I still think MIQ right now should be abolished. I don't see any need for it in the age of Omicron. Um, yeah, I, I really don't. I really don't. And, and, and I see when they talk about, you know, where the borders are going to be opening up, it, they've still got this bizarre policy that unvaccinated people have to go into quarantine. And I, and I, I looked at that and I, my first thought was, why? why, why do, particularly in the age of Omicron, why does that matter? In actual fact, it's, it's currently, as uh, the, this is the absurdity of the situation. The current situation with MIQ is showing, because it's only vaccinated people, right, who can get on planes and travel here, apart from emergency situations, and it's vaccinated people who are bringing in and sharing around um, COVID-19 in the MIQ. Uh, so why, why would you treat unvaccinated people who have the same potential to uh, catch and transmit and bring um, COVID-19 into the country? Why would you treat them as second class citizens? It, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're the plague rats. You know, we sort of treat them as if they are the threat here. It's, the whole thing should just be abolished now. It's, you know, we, we, we have to, there has to come a point at which you say, okay, well, we either this vaccine program and schedule worked and did its job, or we're just we're just telling lies now. You know, look, the vaccine's amazing and it's awesome and 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 it's our program is we're world class, we're world leaders. Ninety percent of our population vaxxed and and this thing is amazing. It's a great tool, but let's pretend and act at the border like it's not a great tool and like it's not doing its job and like we're we're all in great danger. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's there's this this. Yeah, competing narratives, if you like, going on here. Speaking of, of competing narratives and, and, and getting rid of restrictions, Denmark, I see in the last week, has lifted all COVID restrictions to the point where even if you test positive for COVID, there's no self-isolation required. They are one of a growing number of European nations who seem to be leading the way on this, who are saying, look, it's, it's over. It's over. Let's stop this um, nonsense. The pandemic has ended. Um, Omicron is a milder variant. Uh, it's not necessarily something that you want to go out of your way to try and contract. You know, there are still risks for 
uh, a group of people in our population, but that risk uh, level is the same now as what it is for the seasonal flu. So your death rates are, are similar. The risk factors are similar. I mean, every year in our country, here in New Zealand, little old New Zealand, we have between five and 700 people who die of influenza, of you know, cold and flu, cold and flu season, and, and pneumonia every every single year. So that, that's you know, that's where we're at now. We're we're in that territory with Omicron, and I think the the crazy thing for me is we are still acting like this is Ebola, and it's what's so fascinating and so bizarre about all of this is it seems with each passing day, or certainly maybe let's say each passing week. The, uh, the justification for these draconian and over-the-top measures becomes less and less, whether it's the fact that we've got, you know, a massive number of people fully vaccinated in our country. And remember the promise, the vaccine was the way out of lockdown and restrictions, and it was the way back home, quote-unquote. You know, or whether it's the fact that it's Omicron and it is this mild variant I mean, it doesn't mean it's necessarily like uh, merely sniffles for everyone. And it's, there's no risk, obviously, because even the common cold has risk. Um, but it, it's not a bowler. And there's a there's sort of an unraveling of, of things going on at the moment. And it's interesting to see how, though, particularly here in New Zealand, our government is still trying to cling tightly um, to this sort of this level of control and restriction and really this fear-based approach. Uh, when the reality is, as I said, it's getting harder and harder with each passing week to maintain. I mean, we're, we're using vaccine passes here in New Zealand. It's just an absolute absurdity. Absolute absurdity to think that that is anything other than a hugely socially destructive tool and economically destructive because of the new restrictions that are imposing on businesses, hospitality businesses around this, and the impact of what it does to people who, do, who just don't want to go out, they want to stay home. But we're using this hugely destructive, hugely prejudicial, hugely um, socially harmful tool, and th the reason we're using it is to try and coerce people into getting vaccinated, because there's no safety feature in this at all, with, certainly not with Omicron. There's no safety feature you know, fully vaccinated people still get and transmit Omicron on a regular basis. So it's just foolishness, absolute foolishness, but that's what we're stuck in. So, um, and speaking of the vaccine pass, in the past few days, just almost to sort of highlight the folly of what's going on, there was a couple of vaccine-only church services that became high-risk locations of interest. Uh, a church, Catholic church in Auckland, two different masses, two different services that they held, according to their own um, church bulletin, uh, the weekend before last, there were two different church services where they were, people with COVID were there, and now they're high-risk events, and there was a, that this is a church that's not running any masses or services at all, no worship services for the unvaccinated. They're running special vaccine pass masses only, 100 people maximum at the masses. And what's happened? They are now a high-risk location of interest as a result of someone coming there with COVID. It just exposes the folly of this, the absurdity of this. It's just astounding to me that churches are even still using these vaccine passes in any capacity when quite clearly 
all, all you're doing is, um, yeah, it, it's I, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it just drives me balmy and I'm, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today because it's just, yeah, I, I get stuck in it. It really, <laughs> it drives me nuts. <laughs> uh, we had the Sound Splash Festival. Remember that? The Sound Splash Festival. That was it. how many thousand people attended that? Vaccine pass only. Potential super spreader event was how the experts were describing that. They had a, a group of infections there. Fully vaccinated people. So, yeah, look, the, the continued use of vaccine passes is an absurdity of epic proportions. There's no other way to describe it. There's no other way to describe it. It's just pure foolishness. We are acting as if this healthcare segregation of individuals is somehow doing something. It's not doing a thing. And what makes it so alarming is the fact that we are still doing it. So now it, it, it's, it's not even so much the fear that's driving it. It's the fact that we're not even reasoning about our actions. We are just blindly following orders. And that is really, really troubling because everyone knows, well, almost everyone knows. It's like this really is, this is the phrase that often gets overused, but this really is a situation of the emperor's new clothes. The naked emperor really is standing there absolutely in the buff. There's no doubt about it because we all know that this is a mild variant that infects both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. We've known this for several months now, right, right from the get-go where there were cases that appeared right at the very start of Omicron where you had triple vaccinated people who contracted and then transmitted to triple vaccinated people. Like the game was up at that point. But here we are just blindly following and doing this thing of vaccine passes when what we should be doing is engaging our rational intellect and saying, no, this is wrong. Everyone knows this isn't doing a thing, so we shouldn't be doing it. But unfortunately, it's a fascinating insight into behavioral psychology and how small steps really matter and how they lead you to a certain place. Because for many months now, we have been doing things. Uh, one really obvious example is the whole issue around mask wearing. And in New Zealand, for example, right up until very recently, so for almost two years, you didn't even need to have any sort of proper mask. You could just put a T-shirt over your face or a scarf, any piece of cloth that was considered a face covering. Even now, you can wear any mask at all that is touted, I guess, or marketed or presented as a mask, has some ear loops, right, and a, and a mask-like piece of cloth so what you could do is take for that former t-shirt that you were wearing which you're not allowed to wear as a t-shirt but cut a piece off the t-shirt and stick some ear loops on it and you can wear that as a mask you know and, and and so we've been programmed now to do things that actually don't have any positive uh, or, or certainly not any major meaningful health benefit even with if you're wearing the right mask like the n95 masks are the one that you that you need to be wearing and you've got to be wearing them correctly though so you've got to put them on correctly and then you've got a tight seal no touching your face you've got to sub them out replace them on a regular basis otherwise they become ineffective all those things most people most adults are not doing it properly even if they've got the right mask they're probably not wearing them properly ultimately the only thing that would really work would be a full hazmat suit with its own oxygen you know where you're fully encapsulated 
you know, you're, you're sealed inside the suit and you've got your own oxygen supply. That's really the only mask that's actually going to do anything to stop people transmitting goobies to each other. Yes, goobies is a highly technical scientific term. But here we are. We've been doing this for so long now, for so many months, that uh, we've been you know, participating in, at times, what you would call minimal interventions that don't do a lot, at other times, interventions that are not even interventions at all. They don't, they're not doing anything. Sticking a T-shirt on your face, for example. And we've been doing it for so long now, and we've been conditioned to this. And I, I know even good people I know who said, oh, look, sure, Brendan, you know, it doesn't do anything, but but it shows solidarity and we're all in it together. That, that, honestly, that's really dangerous. It's Because it's not really solidarity you're showing. You, you're not... You're not showing an ounce of solidarity with a with a, a sick or vulnerable person by doing something that is purely um, a mindless and pointless public statement. It, it, it's not a meaningful statement. Showing solidarity is actually when you do something that has a cost and that really is a form of solidarity. Um, th- th- this is not. I mean, this would be the flimsiest form of, like some of the masks, ironically, the flimsiest form of solidarity that you could probably show. It, 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 it's honestly, I, in fact, as I said, I, I'm not even sure, I don't think it is solidarity, but but anyway, that's another story. But the point is, it's really dangerous because what's happening here is, it's solidarity is something that I think for it to be ultimately authentic is something that needs to be chosen so that an individual recognizes the plight of another person and they commit themselves to doing a thing. But once the government requires you legally to do it and punishes you if you don't do it. And so, you know, you're sticking on a mask. You're not, it's not really solidarity anymore. I'm, you're doing it because you have to. I guarantee you if they took away the government requirement and said, okay, you know, you don't have to do it anymore. You can if you want to, or if you don't want to, you don't have to wear a mask. You know, here's, here's what it's doing. Here's what it's not doing. I think most people, if they took away the, the mandate, and they actually let them read for themselves what masks are and aren't doing. I, th- I think a lot of people just stop wearing them. But we're doing this mindless thing, and we're saying, oh, it's, it's solidarity. And so we've been conditioned to do mindless things. And now we're, we're doing, again, another mindless thing. And this is another step further along, because this mindless thing that we're doing now, by using the um, vaccine pass segregation, is actually, I think, even it's a further step in the chain, and it's a more dangerous one. The mask wearing was just wearing a mask that, at the end of the day. That's all it was. But now this, this action actually involves segregating people off and depriving them access to the community in various settings and pushing them to the outer. And that's a much more dangerous thing because that tool, the next step, if, you, if, if someone wanted to exploit that tool, and I, and I don't think there's necessarily anyone in our government who wants to exploit it, but... If someone wanted to exploit it, the next step would be to say, well, let's start uh, excluding them along political lines or along belief lines or whatever it might be. Right? That, that's, but you've set, what you've done is you've set the thing in motion. That's why the small steps matter. That's why you know doing mindless things is not a good thing at all. I'm sorry, it's just not. And we can dress it up in the garb of solidarity and it was showing unity and we're all in this together. It might have been doing that, but it was also showing that we're all in this together in a mindless way. That's not good. And speaking of doing things uh, without perhaps asking the right questions during a pandemic, I don't know if you've seen this article, but uh, as per usual with the Patreons Only episode, I will post the link for all the articles that I reference or read from today in the show notes. I don't know if you saw this article published last week. Uh, The United States is now considering lengthening the gap between 
the first two COVID-19 vaccines. What's interesting about that headline is, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, um, but between the first two COVID-19 vaccines. So uh, only a few short months ago, that headline would have read, US considering lengthening gap between COVID-19 vaccines, right? Because it was only two, but now it's more than two. And who knows where that uh, round and round she goes, where she stops, nobody knows. <laughs> who knows where that that that, uh, that little roundabout is going to stop. So now we refer to the first two COVID vaccines, um, which is, isn't that interesting? Eh? That's, that's, and that's, that's such a telling indictment about uh, something I want to talk about today in relation to the Joe Rogan incident and how um, the, the, this notion, on the one hand, we've got governments and authoritarians who want us to simply uh, not ask any questions at all. And then on the other hand, clearly this constantly shifting goalposts shows that in actual fact um, that asking questions is a good and legitimate thing to do. But in this particular case here, let me read to you from the article and what it says. U.S. health officials on Friday said they are considering lengthening the recommended interval between the first two doses of the most widely used COVID-19 vaccines to eight weeks. So increasing the gap to eight weeks to lower the risk of heart inflammation and improve their effectiveness. In her presentation, sorry, I've skipped forward a little bit here in the article. In her presentation, Dr. Oliver said an extended interval appears to reduce the risk of already rare cases of myocarditis and that the lowest rates of heart inflammation following vaccination occur if the vaccines are given eight weeks apart. Oliver also said the extended interval appears to increase vaccine efficacy. So here we are. This is, honestly, this is like Groundhog Day. It was, was it was last week was Groundhog Day in the United States. While this is this pandemic has been like a, a series of Groundhog Days. You might remember on a previous episode of The Dispatches last year, I talked about this issue of New Zealand and our vaccine interval, how it's changed. By the way, our vaccine interval is, I, I believe it still is, three weeks, right? Which is what the US is using as well for their vaccine interval. And here... Uh, the U.S. Health Authority saying uh, that's actually too close together for two reasons. One is there's a risk of harming people by having it that close, the two shots that close together. And uh, secondly, it's also harming people because the vaccine's not as effective as it could be by having those shots too close together, like three weeks is too close. Now, this is history repeating itself. The, the, the interval between the vaccine doses has changed on multiple occasions here in New Zealand and now overseas as well. The, this, what this points to, that this raises, and it should have people, if we were thinking more clearly, we would be asking some pretty serious questions about this. The two obvious questions here are, A, do you know what you are doing? Do you know what you are doing? Because why would you produce a two-dose vaccine, a a two-dose therapy for people and claim that it was foolproof, it was the research was solid, it was well understood, and then what, a year and a bit later? I mean, we've been using this for over a year now, right? announce, 
uh, okay, in actual fact, the interval between the two doses is too short and that's dangerous and reduces the efficacy of this therapy. If you'd done proper testing, wouldn't you already know those two things? And therefore, shouldn't you have right from the very outset come out with the correct interval? Or option number two is that you just didn't care. And this is another example of, of a, a, a group of people in authority who have lied to their own people during this pandemic. And they have known that in actual fact it wasn't as effective and that there was an increased risk, but they did it anyway because they were desperate to try and get more people jammed on through the machine and double vaccinated so they didn't fully alert them. I mean, that, that's the only two options here, isn't it? And neither of those options is good. Neither of them. Both of those options speak to the fact that you should not be acting like authoritarians trying to prohibit questioning about what is going on here and the response to COVID and the vaccines and the way they're being used. In other words, there are plenty of questions here still to be asked. And it is absolutely immoral to shut down the questioning and to call people anti-vax or anti-science or, you know, to say that they shouldn't be allowed a platform to ask pertinent questions. Because, as I said, there is these goalposts that keep shifting and it is so clear that, that what this shows, this latest news, is that clearly the so-called experts are not settled on this at all. We keep hearing this claim from those with the power to repeat this claim over and over again. You know, like they treat it like it's a settled matter, the science. You're listening to it, the science. Like it's the settled authoritarian, sorry, authoritarian, infallible um, proclamations. You know, that only idiots and dimwits would question because these experts know what they're doing, man. Shut up. Listen to them. They know that they wouldn't be doing this unless they knew what they're doing, right? <laughs> well, then you have an incident like this and you're like, well, okay, so do they not know what they're doing or do they do this anyway and expose people to harm? Either One is malice and, and one is, is um, ignorance, <laughs> right? Either way, it's not good. Either way, questions still should be asked because questions expose these kind of problems, right? So that, that's what this shows. It also, it's an admission, a very clear admission, that there are risks with the vaccines. There are risks here. After months of, of, of uh, honestly, I've grown tired of people saying and just repeating the same old trite slogans over and over again. Oh, this is the most well-tested thing in history. It's totally safe. It's totally fine. It's like, well, it's not totally safe at all. I mean, every product has carries some risk. And, and, and clearly what's going on here is that there is an admission of something that's been known about for a long time, but, but I guess you'd say the media, the fact-checkers, the governments, the, the cadre of experts around them have just not wanted to admit, by and large, generally, some ex exceptions, notable exceptions, but have just not wanted to admit, have, have wanted to try and shut down any discussion that there is a problem with these vaccines and myocarditis, heart inflammation, pericarditis, right? There are risks here. They are harming some people and therefore... Why would you not want to talk about that? Because that poses 
very serious issues around the ethics of vaccine mandates, where you are forcing people to be vaccinated or lose their job, vaccine passports, which are a coercive tool to try and coerce people into getting vaccinated, or they're banned from, you know, this raises some serious questions for the church. It does. In our use of vaccine passports and the coercive factor that that is applying to people to get a vaccine where there's risk involved. Like, think about that. Imagine a situation. I think I've talked about this previously, but it's not hard to imagine that there's, you know, there's probably at least one person out there who's gone and got a vaccine because they didn't want to be excluded from the public worship in their church and they have been harmed by that. So, you know, all of this, there's an admission here, finally, effectively. It's tacit. But it's like an admission without admitting it. So, and and what's really interesting to note here in this article is, I don't know if you noticed it, but the use of of that word, um, already rare cases of myocarditis. In other words, again, still sort of downplaying it, downplaying it. I mean, yeah, it happens, but don't worry. It's not everyone. In fact, not most people. We're sure we're maiming some people. I firmly believe that when all is said and done in decades to come, and, and hopefully we will, and we will get a um, an opening up of, of government discussion documents, when that finally happens, I will not be surprised to discover that there were conversations had at the highest levels in various Western governments where they openly knew and accepted the fact that they were willing to maim some and possibly even kill some of their own population in order to try and save the many. So risk and jeopardize and do harm to a minority to save the majority. I'm confident that they knew that going into this. That's the quiet bit you don't want to say out loud. I'm confident they knew that. Now, it's fine if you tell your population that and you're honest with them and say, look, the truth is there is a risk here for some people. But we urge you because the advantage we believe for a population-wide advantage will be be positive and so that risk it is there it's unfortunate but we believe the risk is worth taking right so you justify that risk you make a case for the risk but you leave that choice with people what you don't do is hide that risk downplay that risk deny that risk and then mandate and force people to get vaccines or sack them from their jobs or deny them access to public places this whole thing is an immoral and repugnant thing and it's even more shocking that our Christian churches have got involved in this. I'm sorry, it just is. And there's a there's a reckoning that's coming with this. Um, it's yeah, it's it's tragic, and we need to learn from it. We need to learn from it. So a this sort of thing doesn't happen again, and b something worse doesn't happen again, because clearly it's exposed that for a lot of churches, we are very vulnerable to even the mildest of state coercion to do things that are immoral and that we shouldn't have been doing. We, we just fell lockstep into line with that. And that's a real problem. It's a real problem. I, I can't understand how serious that is. We need to, to, we need to have a, a renewed focus on formation in Christian ethics and particularly human dignity and respect for the will and the conscience of the individual and how that is so fundamental to the very heart of Christianity and Christian ethics. And we have tried all over that for months now, and it's not good. Last thing I want to talk about before I get on to the the Canadian truck convoy and Joe Rogan and what that's uh, exposed about the new political reality that we're in is it, it dawned on me the other day that the government's paternalistic micromanagement of 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 the Omicron uh, 
variant, which is a respiratory virus that is now a milder respiratory virus, it's actually making things worse. You know that old adage about, you know, the most alarming sentence you can ever hear is, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, I think this is sort of proving, the situation is starting to prove that true. So you think about what's happening now. You've, you've got a government that is micromanaging people for a flu virus. They, they are dictating down to the, to, the, to the degree that they are dictating how long you, not just you, but even people in your household must stay home. So you must stay home for 14 days and then this person must stay over 10 days. Right, right. That's the degree of micromanagement that's going on. It is so unhealthy and it's actually going to make things worse. And I'll tell you how it, you can already see this playing out. So that kind of micromanagement, because normally what would happen is this. People get a flu or a cold and the, yeah, there is a balance here because I think one of the things we've done in the West is we've pressured people to be at work, I think far too much. Got to be at work. Got to be at work. You know, don't worry about your your big family occasions, mate. You got to, Your career matters. You know, we, so that that was initially a bit of an issue, but now the, the sort of another hurdle we've got to deal with is the whole thing of sickness. So we, we're often under so much pressure. Look, mate. Look, it's just a little cold. Just come back into work, right? That that kind of attitude, and we underestimate that in actual fact, even just a little cold can actually be quite a problem. Uh, can even be lethal for some people. And I, and I think one, one thing I think that it could be a positive that comes out of this is maybe there's a renewed or a questioning of that approach going forward where we actually say, well, okay, if someone's sick, uh, even with a cold, you know, let them be sick and recover and, and not demand the pound of flesh from them. <laughs> Get back to work as fast as you can. But having said that, generally speaking, I think probably what happens with most people is they get a flu or they get a cold, they are sick, they get symptoms, and they stay home. And they're home for two, three, four days while the symptoms are there. And then once the symptoms are gone, they come back to work. And maybe, you know, it might be anywhere between sort of three and five days. Not not 14 days, though. Not 10 days for people who aren't even sick. Any of that kind of stuff. And so what happens is you're creating a system where, first of all, you are going to disincentivize people getting tested. Because, you see, if you get tested, you've got a scratchy throat. And you get tested, and you're like, well, I don't feel that bad. I, I, you know, I've got no other major issues. I've got a scratchy throat, maybe a slight runny nose. But I go and get tested, and I discover that it's Omicron. I'm going to have to stay home for 14 days. I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to do that to my employer, right? All that kind of stuff. I can't afford to have my family or my flatmates or whoever else is living with me forced to stay home for 10 days after that. All those kinds of things, right? So you're disincentivizing people even going out and getting tested in the first place. Secondly, you're disincentivizing, I've discovered now in the last week or so in conversations I've had with people, you're disincentivizing people scanning in and out because people are now starting to say, well, if I don't scan in, I can't be, there's no record of me having been at a place if it becomes a location of interest, so I can't get pulled into this. You're encouraging forgery uh, you know, obviously there's been people actually act. I, I, I talked about this last year and warned about that this would be a problem um, with in relation to vaccine passes, that people will just forge them. And and then, and you, 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 and there's also been not just forgery, but people borrowing other people's vaccine passes and using them. I've heard a lot of reports about that happening. And so you're creating a situation in which now you've got a thing that you don't really want is 
It's one thing to have a group of people that you know are not vaccinated. It's another thing to have a group of people who are secretly unvaccinated. Like you don't actually know, you think they're vaccinated, but they're actually not. And that that has big implications about people being honest about where they've been and all that kind of stuff, right? So it, it's not, this is actually making things worse. And and then on top of that, you've got these like these meaningless policies that are stoking social division, like, like the vaccine passports, uh, this the micromanagement of making kids very young children now wear masks at school when it's not going to do a darn thing. So first of all, masks and adults are doing a minimal amount. Masks on children are almost certainly doing nothing because they're a highly technical piece of, of equipment. Like I said in the previous episode, you've got to use it right. And children are just not equipped for that. And nor should they have to be the children for Pete's sake. And nor should they have to be. But we're insistent on treating schools now like daycare centres so people can go to work. That's really, that's one thing this pandemic has really exposed. The way in which we sort of, school is like a, a holding pen for kids during the day. So their parents can enjoy the privilege of being wage slaves. Isn't it great? Have it, isn't it lovely? Have a career. You know, that's that. it really is. That's, what, that's one thing that's absolutely been exposed in this pandemic. But we've got kids now in schools wearing masks at a very young age where it's, you know, you can bet dollars to donuts. It's not doing a thing. It's not doing anything meaningful. And not only that, but here's the thing. It will actually create a point of distraction probably in most, if not the large majority of situations, particularly for younger kids. You're now sticking a thing on their face in an environment where you need them to concentrate and focus and listen and observe and read and, and, and learn and all those other kinds of things. And what do you do? You stick a thing on their face that's going to be scratchy and itchy and wet and harder to breathe. And like, what are they going to be doing? That's where their concentration and focus is going to go or be drawn back to on a regular basis. So, so n- none of this is helpful. This micromanagement is just making everything worse. And, and, and it's so bizarre. It's like we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. So on the one hand, it's like, we must wear masks. We must have vaccine passes. Everyone must get vaccinated. But let's keep schools running. Let's keep gathering in groups. To me, it's like, well, how serious is this? On the one hand, you're acting like it's a bowler. But then on the other hand, you're acting like it's not having your cake and trying to eat it too. I mean, surely if it was that serious, we're having to mask up kids and all day and, you know, all these other things that we're doing, then, then wouldn't it be that serious that we should probably all just go home and stay home forever <laughs> until this is all over? It, it, it's this, this whole thing, it's not helping. It's making things worse. It's a level of micromanagement management that we don't need in our lives. And I think what's probably almost certainly going to happen is, sadly, some people are going to come out of this pandemic and they are going to have a period where they are incapable of managing their own health and their own well-being properly. They're going to look probably first and foremost to the state, but they're going to look to others probably for advice about you know, should I stay home or not? Should I do this thing or not? It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Certainly there'll be a lot of people come out of this with anxiety. I've got no doubt about that. And we're already seeing that effect. But basically this paternalistic micromanagement is not helping. Subsidiarity says, look, empower people as individuals, as mothers and fathers, uh, as husbands and wives, as parents, as families, empower them with the information they need. Don't mandate don't put them lockstep into a system. Empower them, encourage them, 
and help them to make what are the best decisions for their family. That, 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 it seems to me that, that, that that's the obvious thing to do here, but I don't know. Maybe I'm a simple guy. It's a little bit crazy. <laughs> right. The moment you've all been waiting for. The Canadian Truck Convoy and Joe Rogan and the, the new political reality that this these two incidents have exposed very, very clearly. The Canadian Truck Convoy, first of all, uh, absolutely amazing stuff. It's great to see this. I think it's a very, very good and healthy thing to see this kind of thing going in a democracy where or happening in a democracy where you've got um, governments that, that have gone awry because a lot of governments in the West, unfortunately, have gone awry. As I said, they're acting like they are parents. They're acting like they are the mother or the father of their citizens when they are neither of those things and they shouldn't be acting in that way. And they're doing things that are not ethical, that are not good, and that are not helpful. If uh, safety and healthcare and, and you know human well-being really are your supposed end goals, then human well-being is, is, includes the total well-being of the total person, not just the sort of very reductionist and narrow, simplistic, we will save you from one respiratory virus, <laughs> right? Because when you start getting reductionist like that, that's when you start doing dumb immoral and dangerous things, thinking that you're saving people. No, but that's, I must save you. I must save you, right? That kind of a over-the-top paternalism. And so it's a healthy thing when you have um, a response from citizens which is peaceful and ethical. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a civil disobedience involved here, but it's not immoral what they're doing. It's not criminal what they're doing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a peaceful way of pushing back and saying, hold on, no. No, this is, there's got to be some changes here. And I think that's a, that's a good and healthy thing. And the conversation, public conversation, is a good and healthy thing. And this stirs up the public conversation in a time where for the past two years, basically public conversation has been banned. It's misinformation. It's dangerous. It's killing people. All those kind of extreme hyperbole and nonsense that was there right from the very beginning. It should have never been shut down, but it was. I remember right back at the beginning of COVID, and I wrote an article or two online just raising some questions about policy responses, not COVID, but about how we're responding to it. And I received a, a, a message from someone, an extremely emotional and stern lecturing, an angry, in fact, from someone lecturing me and telling me that what I was doing by publicly questioning, raising questions was immoral. I was responsible and culpable for killing people. It was evil. It was dangerous. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe this from a person in the healthcare sector. And, you know, that, that's what we've been sort of laboring under for a couple of years now. So it's a very healthy thing to have a restoration of a, of a public conversation. And these truckers are helping to do that. But what do we see? We see some interesting things happening. So there was a, an incident early on where a famous Canadian statue, um, they, what, what seems to be an act of reverence, actually, they draped a Canadian flag across the shoulders. I think it was a Canadian flag or some sort of flag across the shoulders of this particular monument. And they had a hat on its head as well. Th these are hardly shocking and offensive acts of sacrilegious behavior, right? <laughs> Compare that to, though, because the, what was the response from the politicians who didn't want this happening and from the media? Oh, this is outrageous. Defacing of public property and, and monuments from the very same people who just months ago, as 
the 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 Black Lives Matter protests were burning buildings and decapitating statue, de, be beheading. I was going to say deheading. <laughs> Have you seen that episode of The Office? His kappa was detained. Uh, decapitating statues, beheading them, pulling them down, and and that was touted as yeah, this is an important moment of uh, reckoning with our colonialist supremacist past. It's important that we are. We are, we, this is a teaching moment, a learning moment. This is about civil rights. Well, when some uh, truckers in Canada uh, rather jovially put a, a flag on the shoulders of a, of, of a, a statue and a hat on its head, uh, this is terrorism. This is absolutely terrorism. <laughs> These people are dangerous terrorists. It, it's so blatantly obvious what's going on here. And then, of course, it didn't take long for the favoured insult du jour from the elite classes of today these people are Nazis and uh, white supremacists, don't you know? Uh, you know, I've seen a guy, I, I saw one image the other day of this article, what's the Confederate flag doing at a Canadian trucker protest? The interesting thing was they had one photo of a guy with a Confederate flag and it was hanging off the back of a pickup truck. And my first thought was, well, do you not have Americans who live in Canada but are from, like, it's just across the border, right? Well, did the guy come across the border with it? So that's the first thing. Second thing is, I think the Confederate flag now has become a thing that it actually wasn't originally. So originally, you know, it was the flag of a, of a regime that practiced the vile and repugnant practice of slavery. And so it had that uh, issue associated with it. But I think once they went over the top in response to the Confederate flag, uh, really in the last couple of years, I think it's now also become like a symbol that people deliberately use as a pr provocative tool now of protest. So they push back against the extremes of the woke postmodernism by pushing the buttons. They know that that flag pushes people's buttons, so they, they have it. It's like it's like a protest flag. It's like a lot of people, it seems to me, are embracing that symbol, not because they're pro-slavery, not at all, but because they're anti-what the, the sort of elites and others, the authoritarianism, and they see that the only meaning that it has for them is, oh, this is a thing that they hate, so I will carry it as a badge of honor because they hate it. Not, I carry this as a badge of honor because I like slavery. Which, you know, that, that's an interesting thesis. I mean, I don't know how I'd prove that, but I suspect that there's a bit of that going on. And, and they had, a, the same article had a photo of a guy with a Trump hat on. I was like, what? So what? The guy had a Trump hat on? Wow. I mean, this, this is some next level Nazism. Gosh. You know, this is, it's just insane. So that was, the, they went to the insult du jour. Got to undermine them. They're terrorists. They're dangerous. They're extremists. There's a Confederate flag there. What what it's this is exposed really. This is exposed that the media are either incompetent or they are liars. So they're either totally incompetent at doing their job, and they're not. They just don't bother to do any fact checking. They're not actually sending people. You know, why don't we send old Jimmy Olsen down there to to take some photos and check how many people are there? Nah, why would we do that? Let's just say there's 200 trucks, like an article I saw just only like two days ago here in New Zealand. There was about 200 trucks. <laughs> what? There's nothing. It's just 200 trucks. But uh, <laughs> but it's just like so they're either incompetent or or they're just telling lies now. And and it it seems to me probably it is that that they're, they're sort of acting as a propaganda arm. It's sort of very Pravda esque. The the birds of a feather have flocked together, and they. <laughs> And they're like, uh, we don't like these guys. You know, we're with you, Justin. We don't like them either. So we're going to paint them in a bad light.
They're terrorists. They're white supremacists. They're a danger. They're a threat to our nation, right? So it's clearly, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating to see. But this time it seems a lot more people have sort of understood here. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What are you saying about these people again? Whereas they haven't perhaps in the past. So something's, there's a dam of sorts that's, I don't know if it's broken, but there's certainly a trickle here that's starting to happen. Of course, we saw the GoFundMe ban. Good old GoFundMe. You know, so people set up a fundraising page for a peaceful protest about human rights and human freedoms and GoFundMe. As soon as it becomes successful, they shut the thing down. Like that's that's I mean it's just such a blatant attempt to cut off their financial resources to try and strangle this protest. Oh yeah, we're we're a totally charitable uh, organization aimed at helping people to raise funds. We're not a corporate entity that acts in an authoritarian way. <laughs> you know, like it's just this is astounding. I mean, even the 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 fact that GoFundMe. I mean, I've had very little respect for them for some years now because for those who don't know, they've been doing this kind of thing for a while where they, like, if a person is engaged in criminal activity, that's a different story. So they're using GoFundMe to solicit funds illegally. So they're lying. Oh, I need funding for my my sister's, my dying sister's terminal cancer treatment. And the person doesn't even have a sister. And they're, like, fraudulently robbing other people of money. That that's you'd shut that down, obviously. Or someone says, "I need to raise funds so I can uh, I can set up an Al Qaeda training camp in Canada." You, you would right that you don't want that either. That would be illegal. But a group of people engaged in a peaceful protest. No, no, no. We we disagree with what they're doing. So you're not allowed to you're not allowed to give them money. <laughs> Gosh, it's just yeah. Um, it's, it's astounding. It's astounding because um, I guarantee if you go and do the, the legwork, you'll discover that they are, they are a portal for funding other things that are actually uh, other protest movements that are engaged in unethical, immoral, and possibly even illegal behaviors as well. You know, so what this, all of this proves really is that the self-proclaimed, and they are self-proclaimed, they certainly like to do their own PR and they like to present themselves as being the champions of the working class, of the, the little guy and girl. Well, actually, probably not allowed to say guy and girl anymore. The, the little person. That's a gender non-conforming word, don't you know? Uh, they're the self-proclaimed champions of the, of the little people. In actual fact, they're nothing of the sort. They are actually champions of a sexually libertine uh, and it seems to me increasingly deviant elite class of hedonists and people who are ideologues. That, that's, that's who they're the champion of. You know, the people who think that, um, uh, that biological sex isn't a reality. Th- those kinds of people, right? The, the sexually libertine, the, the elite class, that's who they champion. As I said to someone yesterday, I think a lot of people on the, on the left, and, and this is with their journalists, or whether they're politicians, they like to think that they, you know, we're like the Bolsheviks. We're the October revolutionaries. We're we're fighting the, you know, the czarist, the excesses of the the czarist Romanov dynasty, and all their, you know, all their injustices. We're we're fighting back against it. We're we're saving the world. We're the revolutionaries. In actual fact, 
No, no, th- they are the Romanov family, right? They, oh, they're not the Romanov family. That they are like the Tsarists. They are making the problem worse. So first of all, they don't really represent the little guy at all. They represent their own elite and very powerful interests now. They still present themselves often as the victim class when they are clearly not. You know, you got entire things like like Pride Month, where you got an entire month dedicated to to homosexuality, and you've got all sorts of corporations who bend over backwards to say, "Hey, look, we're 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 Pride approved, and we've got the rainbow flag," and you still get people coming out saying, "Oh man, it's so hard being in an oppressed minority." <laughs> You're like, "What? Uh, what?" <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who are doing it tough who don't have a whole month dedicated to their particular situation, their state in life, and they don't have corporations falling over backwards to 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 promote and to endorse their cause and to punish people who don't get on board. Honestly, it's just it is so crazy. But no, no, we're the we're the we're the victim class here. So they're, they're the elite class. They think of themselves as victims. They're absolutely not in most cases. They uh, don't realize, I think, what's really going on, very much like the Romanovs towards the end. They don't see the danger in what they're doing. They think if they just clamp down harder, that the order that they desire, the social order they desire to exist in the world will, you know, will just sort of fall back into line or will come into being. If they just, you know, if, if they just, you know, beat a few more heads and a few more truncheons come out at the next protest, then well, this will quieten down and, and respect for the monarchy will be renewed and people will realise, yes, we are God's appointed sovereigns. You know, <laughs> They've got that kind of attitude about them uh, when in actual fact uh, that's not actually, not only is that not going to work, but it's actually making the problem worse and it's driving more and more people away from their cause and it's opening up the pathway to some very serious social problems and harms. It's actually... They are driving societies towards dangerous revolutions. Revolutions are always a dangerous thing. And and yet these, just like the, the Tsarist monarchs of old, who they just couldn't see until it was too late, it was all over, that their actions were actually, if they just made one or two different decisions, then it's quite conceivable that in Russia you'd still have a ruling family. Oh, not a ruling family, but you'd have a royal family. Like, 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 you know, like the English do. It's yeah, it's it's kind of astounding. That's this is what's going on, um, and so it, it's really clear too that they're not. That they use words like democracy and togetherness and and inclusivity and diversity. They don't mean a darn thing to these people. They are words. They are buzzwords that mean what they want them to mean. Not the truth, but what they want them to mean. So yeah, we're we're a diverse group. As long as diverse means only people that are homogenous in their beliefs with us. Yeah, we're inclusive. As long as inclusive means only including people that we want to include. You know, all those kinds of things. It's just democracy. We mean democracy, but only democracy for the people who actually agree with us, the government. They get democracy. The people who don't agree with us, they don't get the democracy. You see, they're not part of our democracy. Yeah, we mean togetherness and we're united, but but only are those people who actually accept our dictates are united with us and we're all in this together. The other people on the outside, that they, they don't exist, right? We're all together, but I'm not talking about them. <laughs> it's it's just it's absolutely crazy. Then of course the the Joe Rogan fiasco sort of kicked off around the same time. And so first of all, this thing has morphed into something else altogether from where it actually started. So first of all, 
One of the most bizarre spectacles in all of this for me was seeing people like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell coming out and doing the dirty work of authoritarianism, uh, attempts to, active attempts to shut down free discussion and discourse about big issues of the day, and siding with not just authoritarians, but also with these large, ethically questionable corporations. It is just so bizarre. Neil Young, and by the way, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, they are both phenomenally talented musicians in their own right. So when people say, oh, who's Neil Young? As if somehow he's just some has-been. No, no, he's not. He is, he was, He's this guy is, uh, um, he's written some phenomenal music, great talent, Joni Mitchell the same. You can't downplay that. There's a temptation, and by the way, that's this is not authentically conservative. One of the things that's troubled me a little bit is that the conservative movement of late has, there's been some within it, or a lot within it, who who think that acting in ways that are sort of uncharitable or even dishonest, you know, as long as they're at service of the cause, that somehow that represents authentic conservatism. It doesn't. Edmund Burke would be turning in his grave. He would say, look, it's better to be, to do the right thing, uh, even if that means that you have to go against the crowd, rather than to, to win a crowd of people by doing the wrong thing, like by, by mocking and ridiculing and being uncharitable to people. Um, or by telling lies, or by, you know, oh, Neil Young, he's a nobody. Well, he's not a nobody. He's not. So, you know, that, that, that's, let's get that out of the way. But what Neil Young was, and same with Joni Mitchell, they're part of a group of people who were, you know, I, I, I want to say hippies, but I don't mean that in a derogatory I mean, they were part of that sort of protest class. The, Neil Young dedicated an entire album to speaking out against the practices of a corporation. Right, Neil Young has now become the establishment. I mean, I never thought I'd I'd see that, but he has. So has Joni Mitchell. The 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 as someone said, the hippies have become the policemen. Um. So Neil Young, it's just it's so bizarre. Uh. The the whole thing at the very beginning where he came out and said, okay, Joe Rogan's done this podcast with this guy, Doctor Malone. For those who are wondering, no, that's not me. Uh. So he's done this because Dr. Mayan and Dr. Peter McCullough and these guys are raising questions about vaccines and strategies and public health policy responses to COVID and they've questioned interpretation of some of the data and you know all the things they've done and people are like, you know they shouldn't be allowed to do that they shouldn't be allowed they're not allowed to it's not they shouldn't be that's the authoritarian that comes out and people they shouldn't be allowed to have the conversation like they shouldn't be allowed to I don't know maybe it's the Irishman in me but I. I as, as an Irishman, you know, you go to the pub and you, you, you have the conversation. And um, I, I actually, I think it's important. Contrarians matter. They really do matter because often the contrarian person, not always, because people can just be contrarian for the sake of it and be, can be saying dumb things or they've got their own pathologies and grievances that they're working out by being public contrarians and just negative about everything all the time, right? But people who are raising legitimate questions and who are doing so in a very charitable and civil kind of way, they deserve to be engaged with. And I think that's important. They do us all a service. We actually need that. And instead, maybe it's the Irishman in me, but you just you go to a pub or a public place and you it's healthy to have the dispute and the disagreement with people and not try and shut them down. 
And I actually, I love the fact that there's people poking the bear with a stick. Again, that probably is the Irishman in me. Poke him again, Seamus. He hasn't got an eyeball out of place yet. Give him another jab, right? Yeah, it, it, because I think people do deserve to be, um, perhaps, uh, to have the chair knocked out from underneath them every now and again. I don't mean in a nasty way, but just to, so that we're all reminded that we're all human, we're all in this together, we will all die one day, and we will all have to give an account for our lives. So let's stop acting like you're, you know, you're the queen of Narnia. <laughs> um, but but there's something healthy about that dialogue. That, that and, and to see Neil Young sort of saying, no, no, that shouldn't be happening. And and I'm going to represent the interests of the establishment. I'm going to shut down this dialogue. I don't want free conversation happening. I want an authoritarian approach. And I'm going to take all my music. I'm going to leave Spotify. And you know where I'm going to take my music? I'm going to take it to Apple, which he did. And to Amazon. And I'm looking at this, I'm saying, um, so, Neil, do you realize that Peter McCullough and Dr. Malone, they both appear on Apple? I don't know about Amazon, but certainly they both appear on Apple as well. And, and do you realize like some of the ethical questions that people have raised about Apple's practices as a corporation and Amazon's practices as a corporation, this this whole thing just looks like bizarre virtue signaling. Dare I use that phrase, which is often overused, but it just it's so bizarre. I'm going to go to this other corporation. I'm going to take. I don't like what that corporation's doing, so I'm going to take my music over to these other corporations who have big ethical question marks hanging over their head. That's the right thing to do. <laughs> it's it's insane. Like I said earlier, there's constantly shifting goalposts here, and they're still shifting. Things are still moving. It's in a state of flux. So what that means is there is lots of room for questioning, and questioning and openness and dialogue is appropriate. It should be encouraged. It is healthy. And let's not forget, as others have already pointed out, these same people who were attacking Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough for their comments and beliefs and interpretations and uh, suggestions of, about data and responses and policies and everything else. These same people, and they're saying, this, this is misinformation. It's not following the science. These same people, like, like, like the, Neil Young, right? Uh, this is misinformation on Spotify. I'm leaving. I'm taking my entire catalogue with me and we're going to Apple. And then, what, a day later, Apple announces that its brand new operating system is going to have a new emoji to represent a pregnant man because Apple believes that's a thing in the world. And, 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 and Neil Young is like, I'm not going with his misinformation. I'm not going with the scientific misinformation. <sighs> uh, Neil, you do know that males can't get pregnant, right? You see what I mean? This is the absurdity of all this. Absolute absurdity of it. This, this scientism, this follow the science, as if it's this infallible dictate that comes from some divine oracle. It must not ever be questioned to question the science is to violate the holy order of reality as we know it. It is a dangerous threat to all that is good and sacred in this world, and it must be punished with a burning at the stake to save 
the hoi polloi, the peasants, the unthinking, chattering classes. If we don't keep this under control, they might start asking questions of their own and then their eternal salvation and the land of science would be put at risk. We must stop this grave threat. That's, that's when I hear people talking about censoring the staff and you know, I don't ask questions. That's what I hear. I'm sorry. That's what I hear every time now because it's just so clear that's what this is. As this pandemic's moved on, we've, 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 we've gained knowledge and also there's lots of uncertainty still and, and some things have become more uncertain, but we're acting like, like it's all set in stone. Of course, with the Joe Rogan fiasco, we had Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who initially came out and supported Joe Rogan. So when Joe Rogan put out that initial video explaining, hey, look, you know, we had different voices on the podcast, Dwayne The Rock Johnson came out and supported him. And then he retracted his support because now this has morphed into something else. And it, there was an author who seems to be the source of this, who pointed the Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, to a montage of, over the past 12 years or so, of from Joe Rogan's podcast, different po- podcast episodes, where he has used the N-word, like the N-word. And um, so this montage is put together. The only version that you can find online at the moment, certainly what I've seen, is the one where they have bleeped out all the N-words. And so what the, the, the beeping does is unfortunately... It destroys the context. Now, I have heard a version without the beeping, and in some of those clips, you can hear a fuller context. So it's not just the word. It's him saying the sentence with the word in it. And when you hear the whole sentence, you go, ah, he's not actually using it as an insult or a slur. Often, with several of the, the incidents I remember, he's repeating, he's like quoting someone else, which I think matters. Because context does matter in how you use a word. I mean, if it doesn't, then you, how, how are you supposed to use it, for example, in a court case where someone's being accused of, uh, I don't know, vile and, and, and violent racist behavior and, and rhetoric? So let's say that charges are brought against someone. You, are you allowed to say the word there? Like, surely context matters. I think it does for mature, rational adults anyway, who can differentiate between someone who is using the word in a rational uh, and legitimate way, and someone who is just either being a racist and using it as an insult or is trying to deliberately be provocative by using this word. But anyway, so this author, but this is the irony in all of this. So the, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson then quickly rescinded, retracted his support. And was, oh, I didn't realize this guy was one of those. And here's the irony. Oh, I can't support a racist. Well, people then, what did they do? They turned on The Rock. And people produced video content of The Rock from his wrestling days uh, insulting other ethnicities, like the Chinese and the Swedish. See, this is, this is what happens with this kind of culture. When you start playing that game, you get pulled into... It's like trying to run through barbed wire. The more you move and the more you struggle with it, the more you get caught up in it. it. It pulls you in. So the best thing is to avoid it altogether. And I think what Dwayne The Rock Johnson should have done was said, look, I support Joe Rogan over this particular issue with Neil Young, and, and you know that, that's where I support is. If he's got other issues here with racism, I don't support that at all. But you know, should have made the distinction. And I also think it would have been worth him examining what the 
even putting a word of caution, saying, well, I don't understand the context of what you're saying. And I'm willing to come out and condemn the man if he has actually used this as a racial slur against other people, like he's actually said that word and directed it at a person, a brown or a black person, and used it as a racist insult. Right? But if he hasn't, if he's quoting or, you know, he's using it in context, because here's the thing, that author who pointed that out to Dwayne The Rock Johnson in the last few hours, it's been revealed that his own uh, the, his own writings contain uh, an overly abundant collection of N-words. He's guilty of exactly the same thing he's accused Rogan of. The irony here is just is not lost on me. This is often the case. And here's the thing. I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that they really do care about the N-word. They don't care about the N-word. Because black artists are using, still today, are using the N-word all the time. All the time. And they are not using it in context. They are using it as a, an insult, as a derogatory term, as a, a friendly sort of jovial term in a sentence. You know, like, what's up, my ninja? Very careful here. You know, or the old, uh, what was that quote from um, from Denzel Washington? Ma Ninja, right? They're using it all the time in those kinds of ways. But doesn't that belittle and make light of what that represents? Like seriously, if they actually cared, and, and this word really was its mere existence in the wrong way, like, like so... And I know the argument people make because they'll say, oh, yes, but a, a black person can use that word because it's their word. It's like, no, 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 no. You see, the word either has power or it doesn't. So what you're saying is that if a certain person uses it, it doesn't have power. Why? Well, if that certain person uses it, they're not using it in a racist way. Ah, so it's not about really about the person who's using it. It's about how it's being used. So if a white person uses it, but it's not being used in a racist way, then how can that be a problem? If a, a person who is black or brown, uses that word and is not using it in a racist way, right? Right? Or is the word got is the problem? You know, the, the word, because surely you can't allow people to use it as a, as a point of ridicule, like, you know, my ninja, or what's up, my ninjas, that kind of stuff, because surely that's belittling the, the gravity and the seriousness of, of, of racism and, and the experience of people who suffered and labored under the regime where that word was used on a regular basis as a derogatory term of, of, of slavedom and, and a complete disregard for their, their human dignity and a, and a term of dehumanization, right? You, like, like, surely it can't be both, right? So I, I, I don't think they really do care about the N-word as much as they claim. It's a tool, though, in this case, because remember the Neil Young thing? That's where it started. It was Neil Young, it was COVID, it was science, and then it morphed into racism. So what it's, what's clearly going on here is this is a, what you're watching is a real-time witch hunt. And so we had one allegation brought forward. And now we've got a completely different allegation. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the first allegation. But it's more allegations against the witch. Burn the witch. Why is this going on? Well, there's different theories floating around. I, I think, though, um, there's definitely the media hate Joe Rogan. The mainstream media hate him. And a, I think a big part of that is professional jealousy. He has a 
huge audience, a massive audience. There's no doubt he's in their territory because obviously he produces a regular televised show with video and with audio. That's their game, right? It's our game. We don't want other people playing our game in town. This ain't right. Someone run this clan out of town, right? There's, there's no doubt to me there's a bit of that going on. He's not a professional journalist. He's not part of the establishment. He's not part of their club. He is producing content that is actually informative and engaging. He's breaking their rules, their arbitrary rules, you know, the short three-minute soundbite-type approach to, to major issues, whereas with Joe Rogan, he'll sit down with a guest and some of his episodes have gone longer than three hours. On average, they are several hours long, though where he just sits down and converses and they speak openly and people speak their minds. They hate him. He's got a massive audience. And, and, and so he's doing these things that they don't do, that don't follow their rules. He's not one of them. He's not talking about and, and sort of controlling the narrative like clearly some of them really want him to do. And despite all that, he is hugely successful. He has a bigger audience than most of them do doing he's beating them at their own game there's no doubt there's there's a that that is playing into this there there is a condescending paternalism from those who are in privileged and elite positions in our society and he's not he's in a privileged position but he doesn't have that condescending paternalism he's actually genuinely interested in dialoguing with people and debating and hearing ideas rather than uh, excuse me, we know best, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you how you should live your life. And and if you don't speak and think like I do, shut up, shut up, shut up, we're going to ban you. Right, he's not an authoritarian. Rogan is not an authoritarian. Now, I heard someone the other day saying, oh, he's the new Trump. No, I don't think he's the new Trump at all. He's not. And I don't think that's what's going on here. But I think he is the new bogeyman of the world world builders, the the, the elites They've got to have their their you know their demon enemy who must be vanquished at all costs. You know every hero has to have a villain. Every hero has to have an, a, a dragon, a monster that he fights. And these people, they true to form. They want to be the heroes. And so Joe Rogan's the dragon that must be vanquished and defeated. He's the boogeyman. He must be destroyed. There's no doubt though. There is a sort of Stalin-esque bloodletting going on here. It's a purge of sorts where they've, this guy must be got rid of. I think there's also a political element to this, that he he does hold a lot of sway, and he is not on board, certainly in America, he's not on board with the ruling party of the day at all. He is someone who is left of centre, who uh, previously has come out in support of Bernie Sanders, and he's not part of the sort of the Biden establishment Democrat um regime or wing of the wing of the party and so i think that there's definitely people who see him as a threat that's why you've got the white house press secretary suggesting that spotify should be doing more to punish this guy he is a threat to those who um have set themselves up a little covid fiefdom the various epidemiologists and science gods who have set themselves up now as our new sort of technocratic ruling class they don't like the fact that there's a guy here Who's, who's got power, who's questioning the narrative. Politicians in power don't like him because, uh, again, this is really, a lot of this is pandemic related because remember, this is where it started. They don't like him because what he's done is that they've sort of constructed a narrative, a world, 
uh, that they've built about what COVID is and what it isn't. And they have built their, you know, they've made their political beds on the back of this. And here's a guy, he's got a huge following, who is questioning what the politicians are saying and doing. And of course, if it starts to crumble a bit, then it's not just the narrative about COVID that crumbles, but a lot of them are smart enough to know that their political fortunes will go with that narrative because they've invested themselves so deeply in this. They have built this house out of COVID that if the house crumbles, their credibility and their career is in jeopardy as a result. And they don't want that. So, so here's the thing. Both of these events expose some interesting and important things. The big thing that they really expose, I think, is that the, the, the political landscape has shifted, has changed, has undergone a change. It's, the, the example I would use is imagine a tsunami that washes in and washes over a country and then, of course, it recedes again. The water draws back. But in the wake of that water, that tsunami, that tidal wave, the landscape has changed as a result of the tsunami. And I think the tsunami that's hit really has been COVID, in particular the policy responses to COVID over the last couple of years. And what's happened is where formerly there was a left-right divide, and COVID wasn't the only thing, but I think COVID was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. We already had this building around what some people call woke culture, but it's really this sort of postmodernist Marxist authoritarianism that was trying to reconstruct the human person and punish people who didn't accept their new reconstruction of the human person. And so that was already building, but then COVID comes along and you get these really strong and intrusive authoritarian policies that just affect the whole population at large. And they also start to have an economic impact on a lot more people. And never underestimate the impact of an economic harm to actually stir people into action. And so that was the sort of the big wave that crested. That was the that was the straw, if you like, that broke the camel's back. And now anyway, the wave has receded. And what have you got now? It's not so much a left-right divide anymore. I think now what you've got is authoritarians versus non-authoritarians. So there are authoritarians clearly on the right. And in the conservative camp, where they really should not be. And this is the funny thing, is traditionally people have tried to paint conservatives as authoritarians. And what they've done is they are confusing authentic conservatism with, I think, a sort of puritanical wasp, you know, white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestant type. And I don't mean as a derogatory thing to my Protestant listeners, but I mean, you know, that sort of um, that puritanical, uh, very um, straight-laced down the line. You, you probably heard the old joke that, that, uh, that used to circulate years ago about, apparently it was quite popular, that um, Baptists don't like sex because they're afraid it will lead to dancing. You know, you know that kind of a... Now, again, no insult to any of my Baptist listeners. But, but because, by the way, this has existed within Catholicism as well. But there's a sort of a, a, a Jansenist, if you're in Catholicism, or sort of a puritanical approach. Um, and it, it, it's... Um, you know the kind of thing. Oh, there's a the rock band, and they have drums in their in their music, and the drums invite the devil to come into our midst. You know that kind of an approach to things. And so people have thought, oh, that's what conservatism conservatism is, but it's not. Um, and actual, just because these people might have shared positions with conservative conservatives or held positions that are traditionally conservative positions. It doesn't mean that everything that they espoused was consistent with authentic conservatism. Just like. George Bush and the Iraq war doesn't represent authentic conservatism. 
And because one of the things you look at when you look at authentic conservatism, you see, you see this so clearly enunciated by Edmund Burke, is this notion of the little platoon, so of subsidiarity, of giving authority to the small units in your society. So the family is a little platoon. The local community and clubs and churches, they are little platoons. And what you do is you invest them with an appropriate level of authority to self-govern. And then there might be things that they are not capable of doing, so that authority gets kicked up the food chain, up the hierarchy. And then that next group up the hierarchy, say it's local government, maybe they're not qualified enough, so it has to go up to the state level, or the, you might say federal level, or the, you know, the central government level, so you know, the, who, the government over the whole country. And, and so you know, this whole principle of subsidiarity is important to authentic conservatism, and this idea of these little platoons that are empowered to act under their own steam. And so that, that's the opposite of authoritarianism, which says we have a centralized power which knows best and which will tell you what should and shouldn't be done. There is no little platoon. The little platoon is a servant of the big central authority. That is not conservatism, right? But, but, but the, the point is that, it was a bit of a tangent there, but the, the, the point is that it's now, there are authoritarian people on the right. There are authoritarian people I mean, even some libertarians are, I've seen in response to COVID have become authoritarians. There are authoritarians on the left. There are authoritarians in the political center. And then there are the non-authoritarians. And some of these non-authoritarians are progressives. Some of them are libertarians. Some of them are authentic conservatives. They're all arguing from their various traditions to this point against authoritarianism. But I think that's the new, and this has really exposed that. Both of these events have exposed that. There's that authoritarian streak at play, and there are the non-authoritarians pushing back against that. That is clearly something that both of these incidents have exposed. That's a new political reality, and we've got to, I think we've got to get our head around that. And I'm not sure all the parties have got their head around that, here, even here in New Zealand. Because in some ways I look at the National Party and I think, hmm, they're still kind of acting like it's a, a blue-red divide or a left-right divide or, you know, the farmers versus the city folk divide. It's, it's, it's actually not that anymore. Another thing that these events have exposed is that, as I said, the hippies are now the jackboots. The hippies have they've lived long enough to become the regime and they're now in charge. It, this is just the course of history, man. Stalin and his October revolutionary comrades they began as the anti-establishment revolutionaries and they ended up as an even worse. And this is the thing about revolutionaries because this is where a lot of these hippies started. And I don't think people have clued into this fact. They started as revolutionaries themselves. And their revolution, generally it was a softer revolution, right? It was sexual hedonism and flowers in the end of guns, right? Generally speaking, that was, that was the hallmark. But what happened, even early on, it did start to morph. It morphed into like the weather underground, right? And other groups like that, violent Marxism quickly came out of that. But they, even for those who didn't, they started as a revolutionary movement. And this has been the trajectory of history. Revolutionary movements often become far more authoritarian and far more jackbooted than their previous oppressors did. So yeah, you can rightly point to the sins and the failings of the Romanovs. I just finished reading a fascinating book, a very lengthy book, 
about the history of the Romanov dynasty, and you can certainly point to their failings and their sins. But there's no doubt that what came next, and 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 you know Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, what they ushered in was even worse, a reign of terror. And same happened with the French Revolution. Funnily enough, this is what Edmund Burke warned about. He warned, wrote a famous tract warning about the dangers of revolution and particularly in response to the French Revolution and it was prescient in its prophetic nature. What he predicted would happen actually happened. And this is often the way. And so you see this, these hippies who have now become authoritarians because here's the thing. When people play the revolutionary, they still want to be world builders. They don't just want to bring down an evil and then say, right, well, let's discern what the good might be. They have an idea in mind about what they believe the new world should be and they set about building it and they will fight to the you know, tooth and claw to see it, to see it achieved. But they start from a place where they say the end justifies the means. It's okay to have a violent revolution because you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette, right? Now, that's where your moral philosophy starts. As you get more power, that moral philosophy doesn't disappear. It stays with you, and you keep acting that way. And that's why often they are far worse when they become the jackboots. And, and it's also why revolutions are often successful, because they are immoral uh, actors facing off against people who might be doing immoral things, but don't want to step outside of certain moral frameworks to, to stop a revolution. You know what I mean? Like, that they're off they're hamstrung because they they won't cross certain lines. Oh no, that would be very unbecoming of a, a member of the royal family, right? They're not like a, a utilitarian, a consequentialist. They don't think you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. They have a different approach. Anyway, um the other thing that this has exposed is that really the only way to break their power, the the, the new authoritarians, is you have to have the courage of your convictions and risk losing everything. Don't play the game. If you try to play their game, this is like trying to dance with an octopus. Just when you think you got it figured out, there's another six arms wrapped around you somewhere else. It, 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 honestly, it, or as someone I heard it uh, once, in fact, a, a guy I interviewed um, last year who's written a book about this, described it as like, he called it the blob. It's like, um, it's trying to play whack-a-mole with, a, with, with, with like a, a massive tub of jelly. You hit it and you think you've squashed it and what it does is it just moves sideways and pops out of another hole somewhere. And you haven't done anything. And so, so the power is actually, in, and the resistance is found in not playing the game. But to do that, that takes risk. And you've got to have the courage of your convictions. And you've got to risk losing everything by standing up and saying, no, I'm not going to play your game. So if you haven't done something wrong, you don't apologize. You don't kowtow to revolutionary jackboots. It's funny. This is exactly what happened during the Stalin period as well. People thought, particularly in his close inner circle, if we just apologize and denounce other people, then they'll see that I'm really a good Marxist and I'll be saved. It never worked. The best that would happen was your imprisonment or time in a gulag or your, um, your expulsion and uh, your exile or, or your execution. It was just staved off for a little while. So you might save yourself, if you were lucky, that was the best outcome. You might save yourself for a few weeks or months, but eventually they'd still come for you. Or in most cases, they'd just still come for you anyway. Because yeah, you, you're not dealing with a moral entity, you're not dealing with a rational entity. 
the only way to actually avoid the evil and the and this tentacled monster is to not dance with it in the first place. So what you need to do is, if you've done something wrong, then a man of virtue or a woman of virtue will apologize if they've actually done something immoral and wrong because they've got something to apologize for and the virtuous person is humble enough to accept that and to actually put it right. And you start by actually publicly owning your sins and failings and making a reparation in the form of an apology. That's where it starts. And then there might be other stuff you have to do on top of that. But that's where it always starts, right? But if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't apologize. Oh, yeah, guys, I just want to say I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry for, uh, I realize now that it was wrong of me and I didn't understand the, the truth of the world and that by listening to Joe Rogan's um, podcast, uh, yeah, I have, uh, I have contributed to the oppression the colonialism, the white supremacy in the world. You know, you don't do that. It's, it's an f- absolute foolishness. It's a nonsense. And not only that, but it's not real. If you haven't done something wrong and you apologize, you are a liar because you are apologizing for something you haven't done. That apology is a lie in and of itself. And by the way, before I, I finish up with two other things, I, another long episode, getting your money's worth this week. Um, the New Zealand convoy that's happening it's awesome. I love it. I love the New Zealand convoy. Uh, last couple of days, it's been great to see our own version of the truckers' convoy happening here in New Zealand. And there's been some great media coverage too. It actually makes me proud as a Kiwi to see such a healthy response happening in our country. Peaceful, visible uh, voices of the people. That's what we need, and we need more of that. We are in a country here in New Zealand where we don't tend to take uh, politics as seriously as we should, and we certainly aren't as invested and, and as involved as we should be, particularly as the people. And so I think this is a really healthy thing. We have a very English sort of uh, stiff up a lip, old chap, it'll come right. And don't make too much noise. That's government business. You know, that we sort of, we're, we're not as invested as we should be. And I, I have a theory that I think a big part of that is New Zealand's history is actually relatively peaceful. Don't believe the ideologues who want to paint this picture of New Zealand as this barbaric, white supremacist place of evil. Yeah, there were evils and sins that happened. But in contrast with the rest of the world, New Zealand was actually a relatively stable and peaceful sort of country in its origins and settling and everything else. Uh, there's certainly some grievances and some legitimate things that needed to be addressed and probably still will need to be addressed, but it is a, an absolute falsehood to, to 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 engage in hyperbole and claim that it was you know this was on a par with what other peoples and other countries experienced. And so one of the things is we've never had a, a civil war in this country. We've never had violent uprisings. We've never had to actually fight for and defend because we've never understood that. Those things have always happened on foreign shores. Hitler never came here. The Japanese never came here. They never got that far. Uh, We never had a civil war where we had to fight. We never had a tyrannical government that went over the top in such an extreme way that we had to mount an armed response against it. None of those kinds of things. And, And we should be grateful for being spared those kind of evils and the harms that result from them. But the, the, the flip side, of course, is that I don't think we value political or, or certainly we don't devalue, value perhaps human dignity and authentic human freedoms and, and sort of the political process as much as we should do. We're a bit, what would you say, um, politically naive and politically vulnerable as a result. 
And so it's great to actually see people speaking up and not just bowing down in apathy or laying down in front of the truck and saying there's not much we can do. They're actually speaking up. They're doing it in an ethical way. They are speaking truthfully and they're holding the government to account. They're challenging the media narrative. I think this is really good, healthy stuff. I'm more and more convinced that you need healthy oppositional dialogues in most contexts. Some, it's not appropriate, but in most contexts, a healthy oppositional dialogue is a really, really good and important thing. And when you don't have it, it's a big problem. Certainly in the public life of a country, a healthy oppositional dialogue, which is free and free from fear of recrimination and punishment for just speaking truthfully about issues, that, that's a really good thing. And so this is good. This is a, an expression of that, and it's a really good thing. And so anybody's involved in that, you guys are awesome. It's great. I, I think it's just such a good thing. Uh, two things to finish with. Um, as if to sort of prove my point about authoritarianism, this article appeared, you know, again, piggybacking on the back of the Joe Rogan thing, appeared uh, on the Newsroom website. Newsroom likes to present itself as sort of, uh, we, you know, we're the thinking man's journalism. Um, I, I was a subscriber for a while to the newsroom content last year, but I unsubscribed. After a couple of months, I was like, this is just more of the same. It's more narrative building. It's not actually as clever as it thinks it is. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, not impressed at all, really. And so I, I just, I, un, um, I unsubbed. But they do like to think of themselves as being you know, sort of a bit of a cut above the, the ordinary, you know, everyday people in their lowbrow journalism. We're doing something a bit more important here. And this was an op-ed piece that was published by in what they call their ideas room. Would you come with me into the ideas room, darling? I need to have a chat to you about some ideas I've had. <laughs> it all sounds, I'm sorry, it does sound a little pretentious, doesn't it? Welcome to the ideas room. What is the ideas room? Well, it's not really a room. It's just a website. <laughs> Here's an idea. Don't call it an ideas room. It's not an actual room. Oh, anyway, I've gone on too much of a tangent. I was going to say, it must be Monday morning. It's not even that. It's Tuesday morning. Uh, it's a guy, it's by a guy called Kevin Trenberth. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Dr. Kevin E. Trenberth, sorry, uh, as it says here. And so his name is Kevin Trenberth, but his, his um, actual bio says he's, he's Dr. Kevin E. Trenberth. He's an internationally recognized expert on climate change and honorary academic at the Faculty of Science, University of Auckland. Now, uh, here's the thing. The, the title of this is Denying Science with Opinions and Fairy Tales. So what you see here straight away in that headline is you've set up this dichotomy. It's a battle between the good and the evil. It's interesting. Eh? It's not just a dialogue about science. No, 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 no. We couldn't have something so mundane and ordinary and healthy. We've got to have a, a battle between good versus evil, right? The science is the authority and the fairy tales are the, you know, it's another way of saying, um, uh, you know, the, the the superstitious religious nut jobs, right? It's that kind of a, a, a thing you're setting up here. Let me read to you from the article and you'll get the gist of where he's going. Scientists have come out in force this week to pour scorn on misinformation about climate change science espoused by Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast last week. Rogan, who regularly attracts 11 million listeners to his Spotify-based show and so could be considered a powerful influence, did not... And that's interesting, isn't it? This is how authoritarians view the world. They think that those who are in charge have the power over other people's minds. 
it sort of never really seems to enter, enter their thinking, or certainly not in a major way, that people are still capable of stopping and thinking for themselves if you actually just let them. It's very interesting. Now, I'm not saying that you know there aren't powerful mind and psychological sort of uh, opinion-shaping forces out there that exist and that we're all sort of prey to. But so first of all, that's but but to say that you know that that um, the assumption is that everyone's just sort of a dummy who well Joe Rogan told me to do it so I'm going to do it that no one's that an actual fact that the majority of these people are not listening to Rogan and are like yeah okay well I don't agree with you there Jordan you know what I mean because funnily enough when I looked at the comment section on that on that actual podcast a lot of people disagreed with the comments Jordan Peterson made about climate change. Isn't that interesting? People who said, I love your work, Jordan. I really do have a fan for ages, but I've got to disagree with you on this. So they're doing the very thing that he's sort of suggesting here that these people are incapable of doing. He's just assumed they're dum-dums. It tends to be the authoritarian way. These people are the dum-dums, and we've got to educate the dum-dums. Well, the, otherwise they make the bad decisions that we don't want them to make, you know, because they're dum-dums. <laughs> there tends to be, that's me imitating their brain processes. Um, anyway, Rogan, who re- regularly attracts... Oh, by the way, you wouldn't think that there'd be an issue here, right? If, if Here's the thing. I, I've always thought this. Well, you know, if, if climate science is just so settled and so robust and there's nothing to actually debate here, then how can people who raise questions have any traction, any meaningful traction? Like, I compare this with, say, the issue of gravity um, or... Like if someone was to say, oh, you know, we, we, we don't believe gravity is a real thing. It's made up. It's by the establishment. It's just their way of trying to control us. <laughs> or um, the flat earthers might be a better example because they actually exist. But, but flat earthers don't have huge traction at all. They're sort of a gimmicky, comical sort of... Um, it's like people go to the, the sideshow at a circus. You know, look at the bearded lady. It, it's they get trotted out. It's like, oh, look at the flat earthers. You know, that's that's no one. The majority doesn't take them seriously, but they have they have events and they try and make their claims. No one takes them seriously, right? Because it's, we know that's settled. It's it's irrefutable. But with climate change, there seems to be still a debate to be had here, because climate change isn't just about a question of science. It's also a question of policy and responses. And again, when politics is involved, you know, all of a sudden. Well, as I saw recently, when you uh, add, uh, when you mix politics with science, you end up with politics. You don't end up with politicized science, you end up with politics. And so there's lots of debates to be had. And there's also some questions here and, and all that sort of thing. So it's fascinating that always come out like um, like uh, climate change is this vulnerable thing. But on the, si- on the flip side, there was like, no, it's absolutely robust and irrefutable and, and no one should question it because it's unquestionable. But then they act like it is actually frail and fragile needs to be protected it's kind of it doesn't quite make sense to me anyway um where are we uh he could be considered a powerful influence uh did not appear so joe rogan did not appear to challenge his guests unfounded claims during the interview what's more rogan is also in the news this week over false claims it is said he makes frequently on his podcast about covid and vaccines so this is interesting so here's a guy who's supposedly a scientific academic who has not bothered to even, like he's not bothered to actually go to the source, which is Joe Rogan, and maybe even start by listening to the offending podcasts. He's um, he's just said, well, other people say this, and so I'm going to believe it. Isn't there an irony in that? Isn't that beautiful, the irony in that? Authoritarians often don't follow their own rules. You find that very Stalinesque. I'm not saying this guy's Stalin, but that's the same sort of thing. 
You know, I don't know. The, the rules are not for me. They're for you. You're the dum-dums. You follow the rules. I don't follow the rules. I make the rules. <laughs> um, so he didn't even bother to go and listen to Rogan or understand. Uh, so the fact that he said he makes frequently on his podcast shows that he hasn't understood because he doesn't actually. You, you could probably count on one or two hands the, the times that, you know, some people would question, the authoritarian types would might question things he said. It's not that, and, and this is a guy, every, I think it's every day there's a new podcast, or every other day, it's like there's quite a few times a week he's publishing podcast episodes and most of them have got nothing to do with COVID. So there you go, that, like the interview's a different guest each time. Um, it is perhaps no surprise that climate change deniers, those who deny the existence of human-induced global warming, have also emerged strongly in the COVID-19 area era, sorry, as anti-vaxxers. Well, has he got proof for that? Is that really the case? It's one thing to say, well, some guy in the media has done a bit of a survey and uh, he's found 10 people who are anti-vax and he also looked at their Facebook page and they also seem to be uh, uh, anti-global warming as well. You know, climate change deniers, whatever we're calling them at the moment. You know, um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It, it, it's like, does it really sound research because again if, if you're going to make yourself out to be I am a representative of the science and as we know the science is all about research and established facts and and fact checking and truth and and the scientific method and then you're going to just make claims where you haven't even basically checked the fundamental facts out or that are based on flimsy data that can't really be backed up aren't you now doing the very same thing that you're accusing other people of doing I think you are. It's fascinating, isn't it? So fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. But also, by the way, his, his definition of a climate change denier, those who deny the existence of human-induced global warming. I'm, it's, it's interesting to me because I, and I'm not sure really that's even nuanced enough. Because what it seems to me is a lot of people say, yeah, there is a climate. Yeah, it does change. And yes, human beings can have an influence, but we think you're over. I think the more common thing I've heard anyway is that people are claiming they're overstating the effects or they're overstating the danger. They're skeptical of, of, of the claims that are being made. I'll, I'll skip you the rest of the LP because you don't need to read it all, but let me finish with the final paragraph he, he says here. So back to Rogan and Peterson and the growing band of deniers who use Again, why would it be a growing band of deniers? That This to me says that maybe the claims you're making are not as robust or there's politics embroiled with this and people are not accepting the politics. And, and that, that's where the real problem lies. But you're trying to make out like it's the science they're denying when maybe it's not. It's something else that's going on here. So back to Rogan and Peterson and the growing band of deniers who use these social media channels and their very powerful influence to make false and dangerous claims, whether about climate change or vaccines or diseases of pandemic proportions. Yes, science does not know everything. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Science does not know everything. He is talking about science there as if it is a person or even as if it is a body of knowledge or some deity that knows things. That's not what science is, ironically. Science is a method, right, of inquiry. It, it, it's a way of examining and investigating to discover truth. But science is not truth 
Truth is what you discover by doing science. You see, that that's it's so fascinating, that phrasing. Science does not know everything. Otherwise, it would stop. <laughs> interesting, eh? Very, very interesting, that statement. To me, it says a lot about the scientism that he's embraced, possibly without even realizing he's embraced it. This, th- this is really treating science like it's some sort of clerical class, a magisterium, which declares what is true and what is false. Here's the final sentence. But this does not mean you can fill in the gaps with whatever fairy tales most appeals to you and pass it off as fact. Um, Isn't it whatever fairy tale most fairy tale most appeals to you most appeals oh yes yeah, that's true pass all over fairy tale most appeals to you and pass all fat sorry I thought it was a grammar mistake there but that was all in my brain Duh. Tuesday morning here's the thing with all due respect doctor these people are not uh, filling in the gaps with fairy tales as you say that that is you want to talk about a an ad hominem straw man attack on what they actually are doing here. Peterson was raising questions about, basically, it was about climate alarmism. If you, if you listen to what he's actually talking about. You see, the problem here is the climate alarmism is the cause of the very problems that you have here. And so what you need to do is, I think, look at your own house and say, okay, We've got climate scientists and politicians like Al Gore and climate activists and others, politicians, who are supposedly in our camp, who are making ludicrous, alarmist claims about climate change. And people are rightly saying, these people are making up fairy tales. The earth, if we don't act now, the earth will be dead in two years. Remember that claim? Gosh, a pandemic made that one disappear real quickly, didn't it? You go back and fact check Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth and and other claims that he's made publicly previously about what would have happened to the earth by now as a result of climate change that have not come to pass. It's that's the problem. That's really, I think, what lies at the heart of this is your alarmists who just make up this is the irony, make up fairy tales and then espouse them because they think scaring people will cause them to action. Tends to be what authoritarians want to do anyway, right? Scare the people into acting. And, and so, you know, you don't engage with them as rational actors. They're too dumb for that. We've got to frighten them into action. And so this climate alarmism and the fairy tales of climate alarmists from your own camp are the reason why more and more people look at you and don't take things as seriously possibly as they should, I don't know. And it's why Jordan Peterson and others would criticize what your camp has been up to. And it is a blight on your camp and the legitimate people engaged in legitimate scientific endeavors about this. And surely as a scientist, you would want to you wouldn't want to engage in hyperbole like you've actually done here in your op-ed. Surely you'd want to say, well, as a scientist, I'm going to think more rationally about this. I'm going to make sure we're dealing in facts. You know, having people ask questions about COVID policies and about vaccine mandates and about the claims of large pharmaceutical companies. I mean, let's be, it it is, it is absolutely should not be a controversy in the slightest. 
it should not be a punishable offence for someone right now to say the following. The COVID-19 vaccine is not as good or as helpful as was promised or as we thought it would be. That is not a shocking statement because it's true. It isn't as good or as helpful as we thought it would be. That's not to say it hasn't done some good in the world. But it was absolutely sold as one thing. And it look, it, it's not stopping transmission. The, the, the promise of it where we can quickly re-encode it for variants never evolved. It's done harm to people, to some people. Yes, they are a minority, but it's done harm to a not insignificant minority of people. Right? It should not be controversial to say those things, to ask questions as a result. But, oh, no, 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 no. These people are just making up fairy tales. And why are they fairy tales? Because they don't agree with the dogma that we have put forth. They're questioning our dogma is really what's going on here. And this is sort of proving the point. That this is what I'm saying. This is this is authoritarianism. And, and this is the new sort of political landscape, the authoritarian versus the non-authoritarian. Because, by the way, we can do really good things for the environment and create great and important and effective policies in that arena without the need for the authoritarianism, without the need for the scaremongering, the alarmism. You know, in actual fact, I think genuinely most people, the vast majority of people, are actually... Have a, have a concern enough and an awareness enough about the importance of looking after the environment around them. They understand, well, I live in this place. And so you, you don't need to do that stuff. You can actually engage with them in a more rational way. Last but not least, just to finish up this episode, another long one to start the week, another little update about Novavax. Now, last week I mentioned the fact that Novavax was now had submitted its um, approval documentation to the New Zealand authorities. Well, the good news is last week it was announced and I'll put the link for the article below. Uh, let me quote from the article from Stuff. The medicines regulator here in New Zealand has approved the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine for use in adults, but ministers still have to decide whether it will be used in New Zealand. That was a little bit of an alarming statement I saw there. MedSafe granted provisional, uh, provisional approval of the two-dose Novavax COVID-19 vaccine for adults aged 18 and over. The government already has a pre-purchase agreement for 10.72 million doses, which could be delivered by April. Now, there's a big could be in there. And, and as I said, it was a little bit troubling to see um, that statement, uh, but ministers have still have to decide whether it will be used in New Zealand. Part of me thinks, well, hold on. Okay, there's an approval process that's part of this, but surely part of the way of speeding this up would be if our government, our cabinet, had already had a conversation and said, okay, if... Novavax gets approval, here's what we will do. So they should, it seems to me that they shouldn't, it's too late to be having the discussion about what's well, got approval, should we use it or not? Like that should have happened before this point. So they know, yes, it's got approval. So now here's the next step. And so it's troubling. I mean, because this actually does provide an alternative for those of us who have a discomfort in using an mRNA based product and would like to look to a more traditional, uh, and, and well-established and time-tested vaccine methodology, which is also showing some promising results. So, so you know, it, this would actually, it seems to me, actually bring more people into a beneficial position of protection in the country for COVID-19. So that's a good thing, right? So why muck around with that and take your time? Um, in a press conference, though, to be fair, uh, when Jacinda Ardern was asked about it, 
that day at the press conference. It was, I think it was announced that morning and she was asked about it. And she did say, we expect to move very fast on that in reference, which was asked about um, Novavax. Now, what that means, though, is anybody's guess, because very fast could be a very fast denial. And one of the things that does worry me is that I look at this and they say, eh, we don't, I think it's about $35 a dose. They say, well, we don't want to spend that money now because um, we've got all these spare doses of the old um, fizzy Pfizer floating around and we want people to take those because we were paid for those and, uh, and maybe the pandemic's over so we don't want to spend the money, um, which w- I think would be a real shame, a real tragedy. But hey, if that's life, that's life. Um, so yeah, that's Novavax, that's the update. So the, the, if, if the government approves it and gives it the tick, as I've said previously they were planning to do, then apparently as early as April, people could be receiving. So what's that? A month and a half, two months maybe away, people could be receiving Novavax. And uh, somebody said to me, why would you receive it now? I would say that I think that as a protective tool against Delta, um, and particularly for someone like me, I travel. And so for me going overseas, uh, knowing that I've got a... Uh, a level of protection against Delta is something that I think is a, a positive thing. And it's a technology which I have um, a lot more comfort with and confidence in um, regarding the, the, the much less likelihood of, of harmful outcomes and, and, and unknowns and uncertainties around this technology. So there you go. If you're waiting for Novavax, that's the update. A huge thank you again to all of you, our patrons. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is a blessing to have you on board. As I said last week, uh, my family every day in our family prayers, we pray for you. We keep you in our prayers specifically. Uh, and uh, I just thank you again from the bottom of my heart for your support of, of Left Foot Media and this humble little independent media venture and all that it's doing. Don't forget, we're back on track this week with our free-to-air episodes. So Friday, there'll be another free-to-air episode. And as I said, I'm going to talk about this question of, of some four or five stories where just blatant falsehoods have been told and and the challenge that presents to us if we care about, you know, living in a culture where the truth matters and, and we hold ourselves and each other accountable to the truth and what the implications of all of this are. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. Mm-hmm.